Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm going to count one, two, three. One, two, three. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here remotely, distantly, with Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, really happy to announce that The Weeds has a really cool new logo uh, out today. You will see it in all your favorite podcast vendors everywhere that logos appear. Uh, it's really nice. Design team worked really hard on it. Uh, it's it's cool. Um, it's great. And it's part of a, a, a larger logos project uh, that, that is happening. What am I going to do with my like three old logo Weeds t-shirts? Well, someday there's going to be more t-shirts. Ooh. This is actually how the economy is going to recover. Right. From actually, coronavirus. L- let's talk about textile production for a little bit. <laughs> yes. All right. So we've got a <laughs> we've got a good a good white paper that's non-coronavirus uh, coming for you at the end of the show. But we wanted to talk about masks. We've all learned a lot about COVID-19 over the past couple of weeks. But this is a thing where, you know, early on, I'm a I'm a sheep and I've read articles and the articles all said, well, the experts say you shouldn't wear masks. I was, of course, aware that Asian people for years, ever since SARS, you'd like see travelers from Asia in airports and they're like wearing masks all the time. Uh, that, that's been the case forever. Uh, but now I think, you know, there's increasing pile up of evidence that the public health officials were misstating the situation here for various reasons. Uh, Herman Lopez has a big explainer uh, for Vox, which has not yet published as of the time I'm speaking, but probably by the time this episode is done, we'll be out on the website that goes over this. But yeah, it seems like masks are good and that if there was not a shortage of masks, it would be a no-brainer to say that everyone should be wearing them. Right. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of the conversation around masks, you know, it, I'm not going to say that it's a definitional problem, but there are definitely, it's important to keep in mind that there are two different kinds of masks that we're talking about. There are the N95 masks, which is a term that, you know, you like I probably did not know unless you're a public health professional or like you live in California where N95 masks have been a, you know, key stockpile item because of wildfires or something like that. Those are the masks that are officially, you know, validated by U.S. regulators to trap 95% of a certain kind of particulate matter. They create an actual seal around the nose and mouth. Uh, And so, you know, those are the ones that are rated for the use of public health professionals. And then there are surgical masks or any other kind of like thing you have covering your face, which also get lumped in in the mask category and are, you know, not recommended for like hospital use in the context of a highly contagious airborne disease like COVID-19. But This is kind of where a lot of the questions come in as to if you are not using the ideal mask, is it better to be wearing that mask or not? But what happened in the initial phases of the growth of coronavirus awareness in the United States was that medical medical experts came out and assuming that there was going to be a limited number of N95 rated masks, which was an accurate assumption, came out and said, save those for the public health professionals They're tricky to wear correctly. There's evidence suggesting that if you don't wear it correctly, you know, it's not going to help or it's even going to hurt. If you're sick or if you are working in a hospital, then fine, go ahead and do it. But like going out and buying a bunch of masks isn't going to be what protects you from the virus, which is a fair, if oversimplified way to put it. But does it turns out both overstate the state of the science on mask effectiveness and confuse the question of should people be wearing masks with the question of 
if there's a limited supply of masks, to whom should those masks go? Which it turns out are two totally different things. So I think there are two separate issues with mask usage. Um, The New York Times had a really interesting rundown yesterday talking about what the research showed on mask usage during the SARS outbreak of 2003, which is that wearing a mask was 68% more effective than washing your hands more than 10 times a day. And in addition, you know, the most effective thing to do would be to wear gloves, a mask, and a gown. But then we start edging into what will people actually do? And what is the psychological impact of masking? And how do we think about that? You know, we live in a society, even when we're all by ourselves. And so much of the fight against coronavirus has been epidemiologists saying, this is what we should do. And then public health officials saying, okay, and this is what we can get people to do. Wired had a piece uh, that we'll drop in the show notes saying that, you know, if we had an infinite supply of masks, everyone should wear them. We don't have an infinite supply of masks. Mask usage is, as Dara mentioned, sometimes particularly challenging, depending on the type of mask. But also the wearing of masks for a lot of people symbolizes like, oh, you're already sick. And it's interesting how we think about that as a visual How we think about masking, there was an interesting piece in National Review today on this very issue of like, yes, masks have been widely used for a long time in other countries, but in the United States, wearing a mask has a certain implication. And it's interesting to think about that in terms of how people would actually use them, whether they would, what that would mean. And that divide between how public health officials are thinking about this issue and how epidemiologists are thinking about this issue, and then how politicians who are trying to get people to actually do things are thinking about this issue. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I I, I feel like this is actually less an issue of uh, changing social norms than it is of political economy. Because I think we've seen over the last few weeks that between Americans kind of routine historical trust in public health officials in times of public health crisis and trust in leaders in times of emergency more generally. And the efforts, all elites, whether they're medical experts or elected officials are going to just say, if we take maximal efforts now, or if we do what I'm suggesting now, this won't last forever. I think that those have combined to create like a state of emergency mindset in which people are willing to do things temporarily that they might not be willing to do permanently. I'm not like totally dismissing the risk that mask wearing presents in a kind of social context. I was talking to a local police officer yesterday who who was saying that they can't, you know, they can't wear masks out on patrol because they'll do house calls and the person will answer the door and say, you're not wearing a mask. And the officer will say, if I were wearing a mask, would you let me in? And of course they wouldn't. And I think that this does have a different valence when we're talking about Asian Americans and Asians in America, because despite the kind of SARS-inflected, pollution in some major cities in China-inflected, greater willingness in some Asian countries to wear masks, that's kind of become entangled in the U.S. with the conflation of coronavirus with Chinese people, both of those being in air quotes. But there are considerations here. But fundamentally, even in Asian countries where the historical memory of SARS really is very live, and therefore there wasn't that kind of behavioral hurdle to get over, mask shortages have been an issue. And people are standing in line and governments have had to intervene. Okay, so I but I, I want to get a little more uh, clarity and, and specificity on the sort of journey public health officials took us through here. Because I, I think there was some pretty serious... I don't want to say malfeasance because it was it was well intended, but it was a big mistake. And so uh, I'm going to propose that we call the N95 respirators respirators. And we use the word masks to refer to cloth face coverings. Right? The kind that you could hypothetically make at home. Right. And or you can buy surgical masks. Right. But th- so public health officials message on the N95 respirators was correct, that these are extremely valuable to medical personnel because they can actually filter virus particles out of the air highly effectively. So if you are all day, every day in rooms seeing patients who you know are sick, it's like really important to have one of these things. Um, They are also 
quite hard to use effectively. Uh, Scott Alexander writes Slate Star Codex. He has a great sort of rundown on mask science. He's a psychiatrist, right? So he he is an MD. He has gone through this training, but this is not the work that he does. So he talks about like when he was getting trained on the masks. And, you know, he was being formally trained in medical school. And he said it was really, really hard to like complete the assignment that if you a random person without training try to slap this thing on your face it, it's not like that you'll like injure yourself with it but like you will not actually derive the benefits whereas to trained medical personnel it's extremely valuable so i think that messaging like don't buy these masks don't use them save them for the professionals like two thumbs up but on on masks on surgical masks that have elastic bands they also said, and like, you know, I, I'm, I'm I'm sorry to say, like, we have a lot of articles on Vox from this era telling people, don't get these masks. They don't block the intake of viral particles, which I think is true, more or less. Um, and they could only be helpful if you yourself are sick, because they will stop you from like spewing out stuff when you sneeze or cough. Uh, but really, if you're sick, you ought to be staying at home. So there's no good mask use case scenario. If you're sick, stay at home. If you're healthy, the masks don't work. What we now know about coronavirus is that a large amount of spread is happening by people who are asymptomatic. So it's true that if you know that you are sick, you should be home and in isolation. And it's also true that if you are totally healthy, the mask is probably not that helpful in stopping you from getting it. But you don't know, right? Like I went to the grocery store last week and I was wearing a mask. I felt fine. As far as I know, I am not infected with coronavirus, but I couldn't get tested, right? We're not doing tests of healthy people. We're not doing case tracing. So I have no idea if the guy who delivered a pizza three days prior to that you know, has subsequently tested positive. Um, so like I had my mask on, which I think is responsible. And if everybody was doing that, that would be helpful. But it's the opposite of the message that we were getting. And uh, Zainab Tupfeki had a good a good piece in The Times where, you know, she's saying, look, uh, public health officials were trying to manage a shortage because there is such a shortage of respirators. Lots of people, medical professionals, need to get their hands on mass-produced surgical masks, which themselves had fallen into short supply. So public health officials seem to have decided to tell a kind of white lie that these things aren't helpful in order to avert a shortage. And, you know, her take, which I think is correct, is that rather than viewing the populace as like a menace that has to be managed with misinformation, they should have told the truth, which is like, we are asking you to reserve these mass-produced masks for the people who need the most. And here are instructions, because it turns out that like improvised masks, right? A bandana, something made out of a pillowcase, something made out of a t-shirt, they are not as good as the surgical masks you make in factories, but they're okay. And I don't know how to sew, uh, but my stepmother, she apparently used to sew a lot, hasn't for a while, but she found a sewing machine, uh, you know, in her attic. And like, she made a mask for my dad, who's the designated grocery shopper. She's going to make a child-sized surgical mask for my kid. And like, that's great. And like, you could leverage the American people as a real resource. Uh, Brooks Brothers announced today that they're going to start producing masks in their factories. Um, yeah, like this has become a weird kind of like corporate social responsibility. Uh, a bunch of clothing lines are doing it. One of the suppliers for Major League Baseball is doing it. Many of these folks are saying we are going to donate these masks to medical providers and other emergency responders, which is to say we've entered this bizarro world where the masks that everyone can agree are less ideal are the ones that, you know, are now being produced en masse and sent to the people on the front lines because, you know, which which is all downstream from the shortage of respirators issue. Right. But I mean, it's why the initial messaging against the surgical masks was so crazy because, you know, I, I guess public health people know a lot about public health and they don't know as much about 
industrial processes, but like the United States uh, manufacturing sector, even in its shrunken state, is very capable of producing large quantities of textile products uh, that fit arbitrary design criteria. And so the shortage of respirators was a thorny logistical question to get around. But the shortage of surgical masks, it turns out, was a really easy problem to solve. And if they had articulated like their actual concern, which is not that these things are useless, but that they're actually very useful and they didn't want people to hoard them. Like if they had started saying that in late January when the original you don't need to wear a mask content was coming out, like we could have had tons of surgical masks by now. The respirator problem seems harder to solve. And, you know, that's like the president should have done more, blah, 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 blah. But like the actual public health communicators like created this problem, like once businesses became aware that these were useful to the general population, they're like, yeah, we can make masks. Like, it's I, I think hard. that one of the challenges here is one of the critical elements of public health is dealing with the public. And I wish that there, I mean, that's really the big challenge here. I was listening to something from an epidemiologist who's saying like, well, hypothetically, if we could get everyone to freeze what they're doing and not move, we could deal with coronavirus in like a week. It would be great. But you have to deal with the interactions of human beings. When the Surgeon General was tweeting out, don't get masks, you don't need them. I read that in some ways as being, don't do what you're doing with toilet paper right now. Don't do what you're doing with paper towels right now. Don't do what you're doing with hand sanitizer right now. In my view, yes, it was a white lie, but it was also a contextual white lie that was happening at a time where if there had been a way to message like, hey, by the way, manufacturers, shh, but uh, could you start producing lots of masks right now? I think that would have been great. But that's not what happened, because I think that there is a, an understanding that in the context telling people like, actually, you should be wearing masks, people would hear as I should be wearing a mask all the time. I should buy 30,000 masks and overwhelm a market that was created 15 minutes earlier. But I just don't, I don't think that's true. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I have heard, like, most people have heard that, like, the risk of dying of COVID-19 for younger people who don't have underlying immune or lung capacity issues is low, but that we have a responsibility to, like, broader society to flatten the curve and, and like that's what we're right doing it's like as you say jane it's like there's there's no way to cope with an epidemic without mobilizing the active cooperation of the population so lying or fibbing a little bit about it strikes me as very but the issue is actually. we've seen even with that that guidance that younger people are not as much at risk of dying of this so many people took that as, oh, okay, cool. Nothing about my life needs to change. I went running yesterday and I was running near the mall, the National Mall. And the degree to which I was like, you all should not be here, like in groups of more than well, the groups in which people were in. And so I was trying to be socially distanced by running like six feet around them but the degree to which you know we're hearing more stories about people in their teens their 20s their 30s who are in fact getting very sick and dying from coronavirus obviously that's not the rule here but i do think that the guidance of essentially you are doing this for other people i wonder if in some respects that is overestimating the American public to some extent. And so I'm, I, I just keep thinking about that in terms of you know, how we're trying to get the public to do things. Flattening the curve is extraordinarily important to do, but I think that there are a lot of people who see flattening the curve as a job for someone else to do because this is not much of a risk to them personally. I mean, I think that the two of you have successfully articulated the competing incentives that public health officials are under, right? Like on the one hand, this is a very easily spread epidemic disease of frankly unknown virulence in any particular person. And so, you know, 
taking proactive maximalist measures to flatten the curve, to, uh, you know, prevent worst case scenarios, you know, the better to overreact than underreact mindset is like epidemiologically sound. And on the other hand, most public health officials, you know, that are actually in decision making power or that have that great a platform are to a certain extent accountable to elected officials or some broader political constituency. And so the idea that it is generally not ideal to make everyone more miserable than necessary, to disrupt daily life more than necessary. The idea in particular among like certain conservatives and elements of the business community that if you prevent people from going out too much, you're going to like tear the wheels off the economy and it's never going to be able to recover. Like that is definitely, it, it means that any given public health official is going to try to balance those two equities. And this is where I differ a little bit from Matt, because I think the noble lie thesis is plausible, but it's not proven. And I do think that if you look at the science on mask usage, it's not as clear cut as everyone should definitely always wear a mask. There is more ambivalent information on, you know, surgical style, non-surgical masks. There are a couple of studies showing that like, presumably because of moisture retention, people wearing cotton masks were more likely to get sick than people with no masks. It's not to say that the science is ambivalent enough that we shouldn't take the consensus view from studies, especially studies looking at like just doing physical experiments with like filters and Petri dishes um, that wearing a mask is better than not. It's that there was just enough noise in that data that if you were looking for the more congenial way to balance these two equities, it was easy to see your way to actually, it turns out, you don't need to choose between public health and broader economic act activity, right? You don't need to freak the public out too much. You can tell them that they need to be responsible in X, Y, and Z ways, but you don't need to encourage them to wear a visible symbol that things are not okay and to have to put that on every time they leave the house. All right, I, let, let's take a break, and I, I want to talk about some of the, the kind of wider context for this. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. One thing that's striking to me about the, the mask situation and that I've gotten fired up about it is that, you know, when we look at Asian countries where mask wearing was sort of normalized 
pre-coronavirus, but where everybody sort of went quickly to the masks as, a, as an instinct. Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, Japan. I don't want to say that that wearing masks is like single-handedly responsible for why all those countries are doing better than every single Western country is doing. But I feel like it's um, at least broadly evidence that it's playing a role. And one of the things that's interesting about the Western response to this is that there was so little in the early phases, there was so little thought that like maybe democratic Asia might know something about infectious disease control based on their prior experiences with this. And now that's like what everybody is doing. And we're running around and we're talking about the tests that they have in South Korea, you know, or or whatever else. And we see that not just health wise, but economically, all of this sort of democratic Asian countries are in much better shape than any of the Western countries because they have, I mean, A, because fewer people are infected in the first place, but also because they have ways of people going about their lives while minimizing the risk of infection rather than moving everything straight to to lockdown. And I think that that's sort of a not just about masks, but like a larger thing about the political culture in the United States, which is there's just very little curiosity about like Taiwan and Korea and Japan and Hong Kong and Singapore. People are like sort of aware that those countries exist and that they like maybe make video games or something. But like there's, you know, in housing, in mass transit, there's like so many areas where those countries are the world leaders and there's so little discussion of them while like everybody has like a million hot takes about Sweden. Well, I think part of that, I mean, one, I would say people should not have hot takes about Sweden. And here's it's not a hot country. Come on. It's ju- it's just a college. Yeah. How, you can't have a hot take in a non-hot country. But one of the challenges here is that Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore, especially, and even Pacific Rim countries like New Zealand, which is handling this in a very stringent way, they all have something that we do not have, which is a system of kind of a more direct federal, even not even federal, like direct state involvement. So for example, in several of the countries we've discussed, they are surveilling individuals at a level that in non-pandemic times, I would find displeasing. And even during a pandemic, I find concerning. But also the fact that America's pandemic response is largely directed on a state-by-state basis. For example, D.C. received our uh, shelter-in-place order yesterday, which doesn't change too much, but does enforce if you had a party for some reason, you could get fined $5,000, which sounds bad. Maryland and Virginia have also issued their own shelter-in-place orders, restricting movement. But those movements and those orders do not apply to, say, Montana, which has its own uh, outcropping of cases. does not apply to Georgia, which has a epidemiological hotspot all caused by um, people who attended a specific funeral. We are attempting to work on a state-by-state basis So any comparison to the external activities of Taiwan or Singapore, in Singapore, their laws are very strict about many things like spitting or possession of marijuana. And so I think that that comparison is difficult to make, especially when our political system, our constitutional system is just far too different to make it an apples to any fruit comparison. No, I mean, I, I, I think that that's correct, but I don't think that's inconsistent with what Matt's saying, right? Like, I think when you look at there's there's been a lot of noise made uh, among proponents of universal healthcare, for example, that like Taiwan has been able to manage healthcare capacity and deal with coronavirus relatively well, and you know that that is to not small extent grounded in the fact that everyone has health care, that everyone can proactively go see the doctor when they're, you know, when they're sick, that there's this kind of understanding that public health is a collaborative undertaking, which is fair and definitely not something that you would expect. You know, it's those are the larger structural things that you have to have in place before an epidemic hits if you're going to successfully weather the epidemic. But it's also true that, and masks in particular, I think are actually a decent use case here. It's 
true that you don't have to have the exact same relationship of state to market that the U.S. does to be broadly in the category of a market economy. And we see in some of these East Asian countries that like the state market relationship is such that there's a little more flexibility in saying, hey, there is a particular supply and demand problem here. What role should the state provide in helping solve it? So like in Singapore, there's a price control law that requires companies to justify when they're hiking prices. And so that has gotten used to increase scrutiny on people who might be, you know, whereas in the US, there was this kind of ad hoc after the fact message from the Department of Justice that any private individual who was like hoarding medical supplies was going to end up getting prosecuted. It's not that like the U.S. has decided that hoarding things and selling them for a profit is good. It's that the U.S. has decided it is bad, but has decided that the way to deal with that is post facto through the criminal justice system rather than by, you know, trying rather than by having an active monitoring role in the market. And so I think it's worth thinking both about the particular institutions, whether it's mass surveillance or universal health care or anything like that, that, you know, would need to be already in place. But it's also worth thinking about as much as, you know, there are headlines when there's a big bust in, you know, there's like a, a big hand sanitizer bust, which is, you know, the, you're already beginning to see these cases. If someone were to come out and say the government should be making sure that retailers aren't jacking up the price on hand sanitizer, there would be a huge political debate and it would you'd need to spend a lot of capital political capital to get that passed, even in the current environment. And so it's worth thinking about not just, you know, what are Americans willing to give to give up, but like, what are the means by which we have decided that the problems that we that, you know, the South Korean government and American government agree are problems should be solved. Well, and the irony, though, is that, you know, as as Jane was saying, I think in the early phases of this, I think in late January, early February, as people watched China sort of lock down all of Hebei province and then a growing area, I think a lot of Americans reaction was, well, we we could never do that here, right? That this is America, that's China. And as we saw, you know, Taiwanese people and Korean people and Hong Kongers sort of go to their masks and start canceling church services and and things like that, just like, well, like, you know, okay, well, well, that's Asia, right? Where there's a sort of like vague, crude, sort of wrong stereotype of like authoritarian, you know, mentality there, but also a true reality that even the democratic Asian countries have a more, um, much more culturally conservative political and social systems than, than the United States does. But now we're in a situation where we can't leave our houses unless we have a certain set list of safe activities that we are engaging in. And because they don't want people playing basketball games against each other, uh, there's like tape around the basketball court near my house. So like I can't go out there alone and, you know, just try to uh, kill some time by by, by shooting hoops Uh, in South Korea. They're still playing pro sports by moving more aggressively and decisively. Asian countries have actually protected a much higher degree of freedoms that we've maintained in the United States. And even now we're sitting around, we're like waiting for the virus to, quote unquote, get under control. But there's no plan in place to create a surveillance or tracking system because that runs against America's civil libertarian streak. But if the alternative to comprehensive surveillance is like you literally can't leave your house, it's it's hard for me to see that as like a huge civil libertarian win. I do think, though, that it, it's fascinating to see how this pandemic meshes onto existing political fault lines. Like, you know, the same people who were very mad about Section 702 of FISA and warrantless wiretapping are also very upset about the concept of the type of mass surveillance that Matt is discussing. One of the biggest challenges, and I'm thinking about this, you know, if I were an epidemiologist, I would almost be like, let's just pause politics. Politics doesn't matter. We can get back to politics in May. We can figure out where we're all going to stand on this issue. But for right now, just listen to us, which is not going to happen. And that's not how we work. Right. Like pause politics and listen to the experts is itself a 
politics. That is itself a political decision. (laughs) And so I do think it's interesting to think, you know, if it is between being in your house and being surveilled, uh, that's a challenging issue. The other thing I want to talk about in the context of the the kind of East Asian examples is that like masks are more and, you know, respirators are more widely available there, but they are rationed. Um, You know, there are still cases like people are still waiting in line for masks in Taiwan, which like my first reaction to that is like waiting in line seems, seems like not proper social distancing. And my second reaction to that is if you're getting an N95 respirator at the end of it, like cost benefit analysis, um, you know, or, you know, in South Korea, you're given two to three masks a week. It's like last name registration. You could imagine the political outcry, the kind of like, why is it in the government's power to decide who gets necessary materials? But the fact of the matter is that if we are in a situation right now where even frontline medical professionals aren't getting proper respirators, like, the discussion just seems to come from an assumption that America that like there is an American way to fix this problem when such is not appearing. And that's kind of why, Matt, I'm a little bit surprised that we haven't gotten into the issue of K95 masks, KN95 masks and like deregulation yet, because it strikes me that like if there is a properly capital A American, you know, like good red blooded, we're a center right nation, we have a center right solution. It would probably come from the fact that there are are masks available made by many of the same mostly Chinese companies that make the N95 respirators that are, you know, in such short supply in the US, but that are certified by Chinese regulators rather than American ones, and therefore, like, aren't rated for use here. But if that is, you know, that seems like a a kind of nicety that may not matter as much. No one is arguing the KN95 masks are dangerous for Americans to wear, that they're going to like explode over your nose and kill you. So it does seem that there is a, you know, a kind of potential avenue for increasing the more, the broader supply of like decent face filters. Well, I mean, there was a a, a small regulatory change um, that that the Trump administration undertook already, which I think is correct, which is that what we now know as like the N95 medical respirators actually originated as a technology for construction workers and industrial uses, you know, for, for the dust that caused by that. And then the medical ones were sort of developed as an adaptation of that. I mean, it's funny because the, the phrase for the other kind of masks is surgical masks, um, which is obviously a medical setting. But we now think in a medical setting, you shouldn't use those because they have holes in the side. Um, But there was a separate FDA process for certifying your masks as like medical N95 respirators, as opposed to construction and industrial ones. And they've waived that rule. There's apparently not a real difference between them. Um, just the medical ones were more expensive uh, because the cost structure in the, in the healthcare industry, it is so easy to pass on higher costs to the ultimate customer that there tends to be like middlemen are not that attentive to what they are paying for things. Whereas in most industries, like if your input costs go up, you have a you have a big problem. Um, so that's good, right? I mean, I think we can I think there will be a lot said in the long run as to why, you know, in January, we were not like ramping up on the respirators and pulling these regulatory levers and in general having that kind of like 360 degree sectoral awareness. But as a public health communications issue and as a media issue, the respirator thing seems much less grave to me because like the basic storyline around that that everybody was given was like totally correct and and holds up well. Um, whereas I feel bad because like there has been a lot of criticism of the media and its sort of dealings with coronavirus. And I feel like it's overwhelmingly unfair, but mostly like responsible media outlets were correctly conveying what public health officials were saying and I, which is the like the right thing to do like there's no th- there's nothing better you can do when something totally new and weird and sciency pops up than like call up the experts and listen to what they're saying uh, but if it turns out that like they are using the media as part of a strategy to like manipulate public behavior with by selectively withholding accurate information like that's really 
that's really shitty. I don't feel good about having retweeted articles that like caution you that these masks aren't going to be helpful when like if we could have had better discussions, more rigorous discussions that would say like, look, we don't know much about asymptomatic transmission. It's possible that the masks are really helpful. Like it's like our job to tell people the truth. And it's really hard to do that when the experts who we rely on to know more than we do, um, like are BSing to us. Yeah, I do wonder to what extent this is also that like, even before this epidemic, trust in experts had a certain political valence. Um, And, you know, without like saying that the media is broadly liberal or anything like that, I do think that a tendency that most media professionals share with most self-identified progressives is that they are more likely to like defer to experts on the subjects of their expertise and not going to promote skepticism of experts for its own sake. And so I do suspect that to a certain extent, the fact that like, there wasn't a big proactive mobilization from the Trump administration did encourage people to, I mean, for one thing, the, you know, it did have to be a media led effort to educate people about a public health emergency, but also the kinds of people who were who had a reason to be skeptical of the Trump administration's like underreaction were then going to overly defer to people saying, I can tell you why this is a serious threat. And those people were also the ones saying, you know, don't worry about masks. And so that's kind of like, it's a nice, it's a nicely counterintuitive. I can show you that I've trusted that I've listened to experts because this thing you might think is common sense. Actually, you know, if you learn something, you'll find out it's not accurate. But it does turn out to be the case that there's not an easy heuristic for generally you should trust experts, but also experts have their own internal considerations, which may not be totally accurate. Like they don't have perfect information either. In this case, public health experts appear to have underestimated the extent to which, you know, the, the like the, as Matt was saying, the asymptomatic transmission stuff, they appear to have underestimated the extent to which don't wear masks would, you know, would encourage people to continue going about daily life, et cetera, et cetera. And so figuring out where the limits of expertise are and when someone is bumping up against the limits of their own expertise is something that like, as journalists, I don't think we do enough of. I think, you know, a related phenomenon here is like, I have no idea, but I would bet that it's a fairly high percentage of public health experts who were interviewed for these kind of articles did not prior to a week or two before that have like they were not necessarily super well read in the literature of what kinds of face coverings are best to prevent the transmission of what kind of particulate matter they were listening to each other. And so it's very easy for like the assessment of the literature by a few people who are trusted in the field to become the assessment of the field. And that's also something that, you know, we as media professionals should be better at sussing out is like, when is this person speaking from something that they themselves know? And when are they speaking as a representative of their community? But you know, by trusting people who they listen to who think like that. I think also it's interesting how the media has played its own role here because you're starting to see this, you know, at first there was a lot of concern from media outlets beginning, like even from Vox saying like, this is not going to become a pandemic. The travel ban from China is a bad idea. This is not something we need to be that concerned about. What we need to be concerned about are like these other things here. And then there was this like, oh, actually, we need to be super concerned about. And the people who are want to signal that they listen to us. And I, I, I'm putting that in as, as abrupt terms as possible. The people who wanted to signal that they listened to us started talking about flattening the curve and then the people who wanted to signal that they hate the media, the lamestream media, they're the people who are like, actually, I'm going to have a coronavirus party in my New York apartment. Actually, I'm going to intentionally go to Red Robin and eat a burger because I'm an American. And and it's it's really irritating. And especially because, you know, I said earlier, jokingly, but not really jokingly, like we do live in a society in which 
our understandings of events are interconnected. So I am certain that the public health officials that we are speaking to have had their own conversations about how best to talk to media outlets. Anytime that you are looking to reach out to someone, there is the specific person that the university wants you to talk to. You should not talk to that guy. You should talk to this person. And so even thinking about that, you know, think about how much public health officials are trying to come up with messaging that they think will be, one, basically accurate, but two, effective in getting individuals and groups, more importantly, to change their behavior en masse. And so I think that, you know, no, they were definitely not having the conversations about face masks a couple of weeks ago, but they did know the guy they heard at this conference who seemed like he knew what he was talking about, who had talked about it, and now they're going to talk about that more widely. But it's, again, one of the challenges of a pandemic is that a pandemic does not operate in a vacuum. A pandemic operates in a world in which a large swath of the country thinks that this is a attempt to take down Trump. And so efforts to try and limit public gatherings are immoral and evil. And there've already been, you know, there was an arrest of a pastor in Florida for purposefully violating the group gathering rules. And then you have another swath of the country who wants to say like, we are smart, we believe in science, we participate in the March for Science. So we are going to listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci And if he says this, we'll just go with it, not necessarily because of like a deep intrinsic understanding of public health, but because that just seems like the thing that they should be doing. And in all of this, this is all attempting to respond to a pandemic that does not really play politics because that's not what Viri do. And so I think it's a it's a fascinating challenge to have all of this meshed into a political culture where you have the competing norms of a distrust of academics and thinkers and a distrust of the administration, which means that you have half the country who anytime the Trump administration does anything, they're like, we should do the exact opposite of whatever they're saying. And then you have the people who are like, oh, this intellectual said I should do this, I'm not going to listen to them. All of this is making me feel like the real question is, how is it that hand that like vigorous hand washing has appears to have escaped this political politicization? Like there aren't people like signaling that they only wash their hands for five seconds, that kind of thing. Um, And so maybe that's a model of good. But everyone should have been vigorously washing their hands the whole time. Right. I mean, but I do think that there's, I mean, I think that this is. I never, I had no idea. I have learned so much about hand washing as a result right, of like, this. The, the 20 seconds thing, I used to think that the water temperature was important, that you, you needed really hot water. Apparently right, that's like not the, true. The, the particular like motions that you need to undergo to make sure the that your hands stuff. are being washed properly. Like, I don't think that it's an admission of individual error to say that proper hand washing in like initial caps was not something that a lot of Americans were doing. And yet it has not become something that is being actively rejected by anyone. And so as long as we're looking for good models of public health communication, it might not be the worst thing to start there. With that, uh, let's uh, let's take a break and let's let's get our white paper. Let's get out of virus land. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. 
but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We have today The Gender Gap in Housing Returns by Paul Goldsmith Pinkham and Kelly Hsu. Um, and it says that there is a gender gap in housing returns, uh, that uh, men make more money in the real estate market than women. And so I don't know. I mean, what's 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 wrong with with you ladies? What, <laughs> yes, what are you doing? Right. That's that's the real the real learning point here is that it's our fault. But I do think it's interesting how. And I'm, this is reflective in so many other facets of life. One of the points of the paper is that women buy the same property for about 2% more and sell for 2% less. And I was thinking about this. They mentioned differences in initial list pricing and negotiations. But I was thinking about this. I wonder if you would see the same data in other sales and efforts to buy that require that kind of negotiating. This has been discussed ad nauseum, but women are not primed to negotiate traditionally. Yeah, th- this is this is one of those economics papers that annoys me about economics papers because it's, you know, the if you if they're trying to answer the question how much of the wealth gender gap can be explained by housing wealth, that question they answer pretty straightforwardly. It's about 30%. If they're trying to answer the sub question of how much of the gender gap in housing uh returns can be explained by just where and when single men versus single women choose to buy homes, that they answer pretty straightforwardly. It's about 45%. And then the rest of the question is, where is this other 55% coming from? How is it the case that you can explain, you know, a little over half of a fairly significant gap with factors that, you know, would accrue when a single man and a single woman buy in the same neighborhood, the same value of property, or like property that's, that's, you know, valued roughly the same at the same time. And that's where the observational data that they have can't really help them all that much. Like, they acknowledge, for example, that it's really that you can't tell whether women taking weaker stances in negotiation is because they themselves are doing that or whether because they're being given bad advice because the fact of real estate transaction is is that very few people are engaging in them you know armed solely with their own instincts about what good housing prices are pretty much everybody who's engaging in such a transaction has a real estate agent or you know some kind of equivalent who is giving them advice about where to price their home when they're when they put it on the market what to settle for etc and so given that the underlying question of a lot of gender gap research is and has to be to what extent are these the results of individual choices and decisions, no matter how conditioned those may be by the machine of cultural production? And to what extent is it that there are external expectations that are preventing men and women from achieving equal outcomes? Like The role of agents is a fairly important question there, and they can't answer it based on the information that they have in this paper. So the negotiating question is an interesting one, but it's one that you know, if you read this paper less than carefully, you might assume, okay, so this is just because women are willing to settle or women, you know, like women are choosing other things when they when they decide where to live rather than looking for the best deal. And that's not necessarily the case, but we don't know whether or not it's the case because the data doesn't give us visibility there. 
I thought though that the the sort of broad stylized facts here are are interesting, right? And so in particular, forty five percent of the gap in returns is not about these prices. It's about it's about market. They call it market timing, uh, but that like men are more likely to buy low and sell high, and women the opposite. Single men versus single women, because then they show that couples time the market even worse than single women do. But then couples do better on the the negotiating side, the, the buying-selling side, oh, whatever that is. So, you know, there's like a number of different sorts of, of dynamics in play there. You can sort of see why couples might be worse at market timing than either single men or single women, because when you buy a house as a couple, you face um, intra-household bargaining dynamics. Right. The decision I think is, about is the technical when term. to buy a house as a couple is driven much more by non-economic factors than it is like, how do does the housing market look right now? Yeah. In general, people are thinking, I am, we are ready to buy a house, not the market is ready for us to purchase a home. Right. Although I do kind of wonder if the same isn't true for single women. Like, I just, I think that whether or not buying versus renting is like a reasonable thing to do does depend a whole lot on where you think you are in your life. And it might be the case that the thing, the factors that lead a single woman to decide I am going to buy a house despite not having a partner might be the same kind of non-economic factors where, you know, that that, that might be a different calculus. Yeah. Well, something I have heard from realtors who I know is they say that the overwhelming preponderance of single clients that they have are women, that it is not uncommon for a single woman in her late 20s or her 30s to decide she wants to buy a house as a act of maturity or grown-upness, and that there are many fewer male buyers. And then when they are, it tends to be older people, you know, their marriages are splitting up or, or something like that, um, rather than, than sort of young ones. So it's possible that home buying is less normalized for single men. So the ones who are doing it are like real estate sharks, you know, who are like, like really, because the interesting thing about real estate, right, is like, normal people don't try to time the stock market. Right. And you were like strongly advised not to do that. And I will also advise you not to do that. Like put money in your retirement account, put it in a broad index fund, blah, 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 blah. Um, whereas with real estate, there's no equivalent to that, right? Like most Americans at some point in their lives own a home and you have no alternative but to like pick a particular home. Right. And, a particular and, and price it's not to- just you. It's not just an investment piece. It's also like you have to be making a decision, not only how much will this be worth when I decide to sell it, but what will my living experience be between now and that point? Right. And it, exactly. So for most people, homeownership is a housing arrangement, not an investment decision. Right. And so obviously you will get better investment returns the more you look at it as an investment decision. And so if there are different preferences around housing arrangements, you are going to get a larger pool of the buyers who actually are just trying to make investments. Because, you know, definitely like when I I did buy a house as a single man and it was like I had spreadsheets and like all this kind of stuff. I was like, this is going to be great. And like I, I made a I made a killing on that place. Then later, as like a married person with a kid, it's a lot of like hemming and hawing and like, is this space suitable to the family? And what do we think about the school? And yada, yada, yada. And you like, you try to get a fair price. You know, it's like you do what you can, but you're operating under so many constraints. It's like, you're never going to be like as an awesome investor as you are when you have no um, attachments. What I really want to see now is this is is this kind of empirical base that we have in this paper matched with survey data on like, do you feel that your house is somewhere you're going to want to stay for the rest of your life? Do you enjoy being where you are? Do you, you know, do you spend a lot of time in your neighborhood? Um, that kind of thing. Because I, I do wonder to what extent this is a question of is it correct that single men who buy houses are seeing them as investment decisions? And I think that that's fairly easily answerable and might help us get some way toward figuring out, is it just that women are worse at this or are men and women playing different games? 
I agree. Uh, you could probably put on a mask, walk around town, and probably get some good real estate buys uh, under current conditions. I'm not. I'm not. Somebody sure. in my building tried to have an open house last weekend. It was not ideal. It was not ideal. Like, yeah, no, we can have a whole separate episode on the role of condo associations and other intermediate uh, institutions in trying to change individual behavior in this. But um, so I guess open houses are probably probably now out of line. OK, um, <laughs> so with that, uh, we'll let everyone get back to uh, to isolating yourselves um, uh, socially there. Uh, if you are uh, craving human conduct, uh, we have human contact. We have uh, the, the Weeds Facebook group uh, there for you to, to discuss uh, how you're getting by, uh, your real estate marketing tips, everything else. Uh, thanks. If you always. do take, subscribe to the John Galt School of Real Estate. <laughs> Listen, you just like abandon all family and personal connections and you can make a rational decision. Um, thanks as always to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, who has been working with us through uh, many arduous recording circumstances. Uh, and the weeds will be back on Friday. Hooray.